this weekend or wherever you might be across our great nation or our great land. Or if you're listening outside of the United States, I hope you're having a great weekend too. Uh, it's the beginning of summer here in the Northeast and the atmosphere says it all. Uh, I grilled for the first time last weekend outside and wearing shorts on a regular basis. Uh, people are unmasking, so it's it's looking good and times are a-changing here, uh, especially in the good old U.S. of A., Uh, so, as I say, almost every episode, there's a lot to get to today, um, just in a short amount of time. The past few episodes, I've spent a lot of time talking about the NHL playoffs, because they are the most, uh, exciting of the four major sports playoffs, in my opinion, and it's timely, uh, given that they started a week ago, uh, when we last recorded on the 15th. Uh, that being said... So much has happened since then in the sports world at large that I believe is uh, worth getting to in today's show for sure. Uh, And we have a big mailbag section for the first time ever. So lots of exciting things on that front. And also lots of exciting things here um, for the show and for Home Field Advantage. Uh, For those of you who may have missed it last week, uh, the the show of mine, which I began uh, in January of 2019, has... uh, finally uh, started to take off um, in terms of its popularity. I'm starting to get more uh, more people involved, um, starting to launch my own website. So lots of good stuff going on there, and I'm pretty, pretty happy about the progress that we've made. Again, if you want to visit us online uh, at our website, uh, it's uh, sportlandamerica.wixsites.com slash my site. That's sportlandamerica.wixsite.com. Uh, and I'll read you the URL again at the end of the show. But lots of good stuff going on for Sportland America and for Home Field Advantage. And I'm pretty excited about the future uh, and what that holds. Um, now, speaking, about the f- speaking of the future and subsequently the present, uh, Another debate has resurfaced in Major League Baseball about what the future of the game looks like in terms of unwritten rules. Uh, This seems to be a problem that happens at least once per season. Uh, And those of you that know me, you know I'm a baseball guy first. That's a sport I grew up playing. Uh, That's a sport that I grew up writing about. That's a sport that I have the most passion about uh, at the end of the day when it's all said and done. Um, and so I, I, I feel as a lifelong fan of the game, a lifelong student of the game, someone who coaches the game, someone who's been around the game, there's really been a destructive argument that has surfaced in the last five to 10 years. I'd say more or less the last five to six years. I think it really began with Jose Bautista's bat flip um, in 2015 uh, in the playoffs uh, when he was a member of the Blue Jays, and I don't think it's gotten better. Um, And I think that there's this destructive division in the game between old school and new school. Uh, And I think it's useless, uh, and I think it's not even worth having. I don't think it's a debate that's worth having. Uh, and I could spend a whole show on this. I said that all about a lot of topics. I've said that about this topic before. 
but when it comes to this issue, there's just so many different layers about what the motives are behind any solution, what the root causes are of the problem itself, uh, what the best way to fix it is, and whose fault it is. And I know those things might sound similar, but they're all different parts of honestly the same argument. Um, and a lot of times we look at it from the modernization point of view because a lot of hardcore baseball fans believe that the game needs to adapt in order to stay relevant in the 21st century. Uh, meanwhile, there's a faction of people who believe that baseball is inherently uh, supposed to be purified and inherently supposed to be held to a higher esteem than other sports because of its place in the history of our society, yada, yada, yada. So there's a lot that goes into that from just a sociological and cultural perspective that isn't very fun to talk about. Um, but what is fun to talk about is current events. And this past week, for those of you that missed it, the, the most recent brouhaha, in the words of the Wall Street Journal's Jason Gay, is an issue that arose between the Minnesota Twins and the Chicago White Sox, where essentially a utility player was brought in to pitch during a blowout, and a rookie from the Chicago White Sox, Yerman Mercedes, um, swung at a 3-0 count and hit a home run when his team was up big and it was clear that the Twins were just putting a position player in to uh, to get through and not waste their bullpen and they had basically thrown the game. So that's not that huge of an issue in my opinion, but what happened after that became sort of a issue in terms of in terms of communication and in terms of popular opinion and reaction and Twitter reaction, which is a completely different animal. Um, and what happened was that the manager of the Chicago White Sox, Tony La Russa, who's a longtime baseball a baseball uh, executive and manager, he took issue with his own team. Uh, he said he did not have a problem with how the Twins handled that when they subsequently threw at Yearman Mercedes. Uh, and then he also said that prior to the Twins throwing at them, that that he was not uh, impressed with his player and what his player did, and that, that would have consequences. Um, so to me, I think the problem is not necessarily that bigger argument about baseball's unwritten rules or the tradition versus modern. I mean, that, that to me is not a big issue in this situation. I think it's an example that people will use to talk about those bigger issues. But in this situation in particular, the most significant problem is that Tony La Russa did not back his player. Um, and if you want to talk about unwritten rules, I think that in and of itself is the biggest unwritten rule. 
to me that's more that's more important than some you know arbitrary agreement that you're going to be sportsmanlike a hundred percent of the time no matter the situation I think the fact that you're under your roof and especially when you are public facing you are going to give off the idea that you are going to side with your player if you're a manager or a coach at least in public if he wanted to address that privately and say hey look German hey this wasn't a great idea it doesn't really reflect on us as a as a team well um, we're not that kind of team we want to be the team that when we win we win when we lose we lose and we don't you know we don't want to rub it in we don't want to be that kind of team if you wanted to address that internally as a manager that's his right and I know that might not be a popular take but if it's internally within the clubhouse walls sure I would grant that you know I've played for coaches who who ripped into us at times when we needed it but that was usually when we lost when we won and we weren't winning and if we were winning and we were rubbing it in or showboating, I played for coaches that didn't want anything to do with that. Now, I don't necessarily think that Yerman Mercedes was showboating. I think he just swung at a, swung at a pitch on a 3-0 count that he saw was a strike, and, uh, and usually people will take in that situation. But, I mean, he hit, he hit, he hit the ball, and, and he hit a home run, and that, that's his, that was his choice as a hitter. But like I said, if a... If a manager wants to address that internally, I have no problem with that. If a manager wants to say, look, this is how we're going to play the game when I'm in charge. Um, I'll support you. But just going forward, you know, I'd like this to be how we win, win games. I would be completely fine with that. The problem is not that the batter hit the home run. It's that... The coach did not do what I just said would be okay. In fact, he did ex- the opposite. As I said a few minutes ago, he went and he said to the media that it was something that he didn't uh, agree with and that he didn't support and that he would be talking to his team about it. That's not what you say to the media. What you would say would be, I always have, the, I always have my players' backs. Well, there's 26 guys in this clubhouse, each one of them. I look out like a son or yada yada or a brother or yada yada yada. We're a family in here. We stick together as a family. I'll always stand by my players. And then I, you know, go and say to the players, if I disagreed with it, hey, love you guys, but let's next time we get a 3-0 count and off a utility player in a blowout game, take the walk. And save, save it for when the game's contested. You know, that's what I'd say. But Tony La Russa, he didn't do that. Because this is a guy who seems to care so much about appearances and the way that baseball used to be played. That he didn't even think about that unwritten rule. <coughs> Excuse me. To me, defending your players is more important than defending some, like I said, arbitrary idea of what sportsmanship looks like. Um, Because sportsmanship is pretty subjective. Defending your team 
and standing by your players who you lead, that's not really as subjective. That's you either did it or you don't. So there's there's just been a lot of reaction about that. And I, I tend to think that this is less an argument about baseball's unwritten rules and more an argument about Tony La Russa not standing up for his team, which I think is despicable. I mean, this is a team with so many good young players. Yuan Mancada, Tim Anderson, Michael Kopech, Jose Abreu, Mercedes himself is having a hell of a year. It's just, that's not something you want to do. If you want to send the message to your team, which is playing well, by the way, you internally address the any issue, and then you have a unified front against the public. To do otherwise is just being... Is just being selfish and, you know, just someone who's looking for attention. And a friend of mine who uh, is based in the Chicago area, who I used to write with at Baseball Hawk Warner, uh, he said, quote, on Facebook, Our manager is an out-of-touch, clueless waste of time. He scolded a player for hitting a home run. Time to hang them up, Tony. The game has passed you by. Tell the other team not to stink so much. He can't judge a tired starting pitcher. He doesn't know the rules of the game. He's pathetic, and we win in spite of him, not because of him. So, then they had a couple other guys weigh in, and another guy said, and he wrote, he wrote this, He is awful, and while I've always felt that Jerry Reinsdorf was inappropriately maligned in this town from time to time, He's losing a tell of one earned. He's losing a ton of well-earned cred by overruling the men who know the game, and installing a friend who ultimately is a polarizing despot with little grasp of the current game. I hate this version of Tony Larusa with a passion. So clearly, the fans and those individuals out in the Windy City are not pleased with him either. It's not one of those situations where the town or the city will stick by their team or their manager, no matter what. There's been players that have, um, there's been players that have uh, voiced concern around the league about his handling of the situation. And look, for someone who supposedly cares so much about these marginal, unwritten rules, this is a man who had a DUI not that long ago. So maybe we should start worrying more about the actual written laws of this country, and not necessarily these like I said, uh, insignificant uh, unwritten rules of baseball uh, that seem to be causing a unnecessary and destructive rift in the game that we all enjoy. Uh, so that's my two cents on the Tony La Russa incident. Um, I know that was almost 15 minutes talking about that, but um, it, it definitely needed to be said. Uh, and as someone who loves baseball, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't address that and give my opinion on it. And I, I hope, I encourage you guys to weigh in as well uh, in the comments or, or um, you know, write to me at sportlandamerica at gmail.com uh, with, uh, with your take on this situation because it's, it's, it's not going away. Uh, like I said, this debate, this sociological and cultural debate about baseball is not going away anytime soon, uh, unfortunately. And there will be more instances like this. Uh, so speaking of baseball, we had a huge mailbag section, and a few of the questions did include MLB-related topics. 
Um, so I'll just start right off with them because they were all all great questions, uh, and I'm very excited. And I'll start with the baseball ones specifically before I move on to the uh, hockey, basketball, and um, and then later on with my other topics. But the first one uh, is from Kyle. He says, "What's your opinion on?" There being five or six no-hitters so far in this MLB season, how does this affect the game now and for the future? I think we need to do something about this. I don't know what. Um, I think we need. I think it honestly starts with the lower levels of baseball. Um, we talk a lot about the three true outcomes, which is a homer, a walk, and a strikeout. Hitting a home run, hitting a baseball in general, is one of the hardest things to do uh, in all of sports. So, to begin with. So, when you, at the lower levels of the game, start to teach things like launch angle and exit velocity and spin rate and all this, it's all about velocity and power, both as on the, both from the pitcher's standpoint and from the hitter's standpoint, you start to make what was already hard even harder because college players, high school players, amateurs, minor league players, they're learning the game. As a hitter, you're learning to hit home runs. As a pitcher, you're learning to throw hard. And there's really nothing else. There's no discussion. There's no emphasis on the nuances of baseball, like hitting for average, stealing, f being a five-tool player. We look at players now and we evaluate them. And as long as they've got one tool, we just, you know, we tell them what, you know, what, what they're going to be. We change their swing. The analytics has, done, has played a big part in all of this. So I think it happens at lower levels. And, and the result is that at the higher levels, at Major League Baseball, you have guys emerging that throw 100 miles an hour, as from the pitching point of view, and they hit home runs from the hitter's point of view. And that's all they do. And occasionally they'll walk and strike out. So before all of this, hitting a home run was one of the hardest things to do in baseball, let alone just hitting the ball, period. And now that we've basically put an emphasis on home runs, it's like there's no more – people don't hit for average anymore. And when they do, it's not as sexy, and people aren't as all about it. And there's not, there's not as much fanfare about, around a guy like Kevin Pillar – you know, who's speaking of a recent player. I mean, I'm just thinking of him because he's been in the news recently. He got hit by a pitch. This is a guy who's never really been a home run hitter in his entire career. He's been a fantastic defender. He's hit for average. He's hit, he has speed. He has decent arm. He's like, I would say he's like a three or four tool player. He's not a five tool player, obviously, like Mike Trout or, or um, Bryce Harper or Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, but he's a solid major league player who can do multiple things on a diamond. We don't have those kind of players anymore. So what you end up happening is you, there's players like Joey Gallo, who is either a home run or a strikeout. You know, Franchi Cordero, same thing. Bobby Dalbeck, same thing. Those are Red Sox players. So when these pitchers, who meanwhile have, have also come through the system and or whose, whose careers have evolved to become more of a power pitcher, they are now having an easier time against lineups because there's not a lot of players that hit for average. And I know people people will bark at me with stats and war and this and that and all these other things. 
But for just from a big picture perspective, that's what I think. Um, and 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 I I think we have to do something about the way the game is played at the lower levels. And um, I think we need to de-emphasize uh, position specialization at such an early age. We need to de-emphasize the importance of uh, power and uh, velocity in younger uh, players, especially younger pitchers. That's why we have so many players or so many young pitchers having Tommy John surgery. Um, and lastly, I think that while awesome, while no-hitters are awesome, when there's more of them, it's just not as cool. Uh, I remember the first no-hitter I watched was on September 1st, 2007. Uh, it was a Saturday night before, I believe it was a Saturday night or a Friday night before school started on Liberty Weekend. And Clay Buckholz threw a no-hitter. He no-hit the Baltimore Orioles. He struck out Nick Barcakis to end the game. And it was awesome. Um, I can still hear Don Arcello making that call. Uh, Fenway was into a frenzy, he said. That was awesome. It happened a couple. It happened, I think, the following spring with John Lester, and it hasn't happened for the Red Sox since. I mean, there's been some pretty memorable no-hitters just in my lifetime. I think about some of the ones that um, Roy Halladay threw or that Tim Lincecum threw um, or... Some of the ones that were thrown, I think Ubaldo Jimenez, when he was on the Rockies several years ago, had a really, really um, powerful no-hitter with a lot of great defensive plays. Um, you know, there was a kid uh, who I who I work with his I used to work with his mom. Uh, he threw a he threw a no-hitter for his high school team, and he struck out 19 of 21 batters. So I mean, there's been some pretty phenomenal no-hitters at all levels. I mean, and this kid's a this kid's a fantastic player, and he's playing Division One baseball. So, you know, he he'll he's gonna have a he's gonna have a great amateur career for sure. Um, that will continue. But at the pro level, it's like these no hitters used to be like a dime a dozen, and they were awesome. You know, or they used to not. Sorry, they used to not be a dime a dozen. They used to be rare, and uh, they used to be um, they used to be something that was cherished or that everyone would turn tune their radios or change their TV remote uh, to go watch or listen to. And I, I just don't want that to get watered down. So that's my thoughts on, that's my thoughts on no hitters. Uh, Mike's question says, will Chris sales return boost the Red Sox rotation considering how well they have fared so far this season into May? I think Chris sale doesn't need to be Cy Young contender Chris Sale. He doesn't need to be all-star game starter Chris Sale. He doesn't need to be, um, you know, 300 inning a year Chris Sale or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, 300 strikeout Chris Sale um, or whatever whatever the stat was that he was chasing a couple of years ago. He doesn't need to be that pitcher. He needs to be, he needs to play like an ace because he's, he's getting paid like an ace. Uh, but I think he just needs to be another solid, dependable player that can come out every fifth day. And I know that sounds cliche, but they, they've they had some good starting pitching. I mean, uh, some of these guys, like Nick Pavetta and Garrett Richards, like, they've turned it around. They've looked strong. Eduardo Rodriguez has been shaky. Even Nathan Evaldi has been shaky, but they've weathered the storm. Martin Perez has had a decent run of it as well. And I think as long as... 
as long as Chris Sale can come back and be a contributor and not get hurt and stay on the field and maybe give you five and two-thirds innings or six innings, he doesn't need to come out and give you seven or eight innings like he was giving you in 2017 and 2018. Uh, he, he needs to come out, take the ball every fifth day. He doesn't need to throw 98 like he used to, He he but he needs to just give you innings. He needs to induce outs and ease his way back in. You still have him for a couple more years. He's still going to be a leader on this team. He's someone that a lot of people respect in the clubhouse. And I think I think that if the Red Sox can get him back, it's essentially like trading for a starter at the trade deadline. And that would be that would be huge for the Red Sox because the next two months they're gonna have a hard schedule. They're gonna start having to play the Yankees. They're gonna start having more divisional games that aren't against the Orioles. And it's going to be imperative that their pitching holds up because I think their offense will have its highs and lows and they'll weather the storm. But I think that, I think they're going to need, they're going to need that uh, consistency from their pitching staff. If they are going to even sniff the pennant race in uh, August, because I know, I know they're in first place right now. I know they played considerably well, uh, but I'm, I'm still nervous about the long-term dependability of the starting rotation. Uh, and hopefully Chris Sale can do do wonders for that. Um, Patrick asks, what are your thoughts about MLB's announcement of that the Athletics are open to the idea of relocate, relocating to a different city? What city would make the most sense for the A's to move to? Would it be good for the MLB if the A's moved to a different city? Would this open the door for future MLB expansions in a city like Portland, Oregon? Or, or a place where there's already talks about establishing a team? Wow. So this is huge. I've wanted to talk about this for a while, so thank you for asking. My my take on MLB expansion is basically revolves around three places. All right, it revolves around Tampa, it revolves around Oakland, and it revolves around um, the mystery city that would take one of those two teams. Because I don't think both the Rays and the Athletics are moving. The 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 league won't let that happen. I, I, not, not so soon. And I'm not, um, an expert on the CBA and, or what would need to be done, um, or what the owners would need to ratify or, or how that works. I know how that works in hockey or, or in, um, football. I'm not quite sure how it works in, uh, MLB expansion because I was quite young when the Expos moved to, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, that being said, uh, I think one of those franchises will, will move uh, in the next five to ten years, whether it be the Athletics or the Rays. Um, I think we've already seen a mass exodus of professional franchises leave Oakland. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that trend continues. Uh, the Raiders obviously went to Las Vegas. And the uh, Warriors moved across the Bay to San Francisco. And so I think if, if a city was to do it, it would make more sense that it was the um, athletics because the Tampa Bay Rays have had such a renaissance in the last year and a half or so with their World Series appearance with the fact that Tampa itself is a sports city on the climb. The Buccaneers... 
the Lightning. So I think I don't think Tampa's going anywhere yet. I think Tampa also has a better case of building a new stadium than the Athletics do. So with all of that as the backdrop, now we look at this mystery city. Um, and there's a lot of different players here. Uh, obviously, the first one, which Patrick mentioned, is Portland, Oregon. A lot of people have talked about Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm not a huge fan of having another team in that part of the country. Um, if it, if The only way I would want that would be if it was in Vancouver, British Columbia. And the reason being is I think adding a second franchise to Canada would be more valuable to Major League Baseball than adding another franchise that will play in West Coast time in the United States. So then we... We've already got Seattle. We've already got L.A. Uh, we've got um, San Diego. We've got the Dodgers. We've got San Francisco. We have Oakland. So I think if they were going to move, they were going to move the A's. I feel like they would almost, in in one respect, they would want to keep them in the Pacific time zone in the U.S. But I feel like it would almost be better for nationwide baseball fans if they uh, moved them somewhere a little more centrally located, like Nashville, Tennessee, or San Antonio, Texas. Um, But I'm not convinced they're going to do that because it's really, it comes down to a very simple question, which is who has the infrastructure and who has the money? And if Portland, Oregon has the infrastructure and the money to do so, that it will happen. Um, The demand, they'll they'll worry about the demand later. Um, I mean, this is, this is not a league that's worried about demand of product at this point. Um, and they, sh- they should be worried, but they're not. Um, so, the, yeah, those are some American mystery cities. I would basically say it would be one of those three, almost a sure bet. It would be Nashville, Portland, Oregon, or San Antonio. Um, now, Canada could be Montreal, could be uh, Vancouver. Montreal has a little bit more of a baseball history um, in terms of pro franchises, but I would argue that British Columbia produces more major league players than any other provincial than any other provincial area in Canada. So I think Vancouver would be pretty cool because you would have that natural rivalry with Seattle that exists in MLS and that also ex- will exist in the future in the NHL. So I think adding Baseball to that mix would be interesting. Vancouver is clearly a, the most sexy destination of the foreign cities. They're not putting one in Puerto Rico and they're not putting one in Mexico. So I think if they were going to put a franchise outside the contiguous United States, it would certainly be um, in Canada and it would certainly be in Montreal or Vancouver. For the reasons I just said, I think Vancouver would be cooler. Um, it's a beautiful city. They hosted the Olympics. They have a CFL franchise. They used to have an NBA franchise. They ha- they obviously have an NHL franchise. So there's been pro sports that have succeeded there. Um, and like I said, it's a place of any place in Canada. I would say it's the place where baseball tends to be more popular because it's the warmest of the provinces year round, um, especially if you're in that south western corner near the vancouver and vancouver island area tends to be more of that what we would call the pacific northwest climate 
um, as opposed to the, uh, you know, uh, extremely cold parts of, you know, the interior of Canada and the middle part of Canada. Um, but yeah, I, w I would say to answer your question, Patrick, uh, the, it would open the door if the athletics would move for sure to go to a different area, obviously. Um, but I also think if the MLB wanted to expand and add uh, additional teams, because it seems like other teams are realized or other leagues are realizing that 32 is a good number because it's divisible by 16, it's divisible by 8, it's, it's divisible by 4. You could have really good divisional structures that way um, and really good bracket uh, engineering that way. And you've seen in recent years that the MLB is looking to expand their playoffs. Uh, and I wouldn't doubt if they continue that. So having 32 teams would be helpful. Um, so if they were to move the A's or the Rays to Montreal or to San Antonio or Portland or Nashville or wherever, um, I think that would be uh, likely. And then what would then have to happen if they wanted to expand was they'd have to add two to make it 32. And that's where you would see one of those other cities come into play. Nashville's pretty cool. They have the infrastructure. They have an appetite for pro sports. You've seen the fervor that has surrounded the Titans and the Predators in recent years. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt um, that that could be a possibility someday down the line either. All right, switching gears here. We have two brief questions, um, again, from Kyle. Um, I know I've spent a lot of time in the NHL playoffs in the past, um, so I'm just going to make that brief. There's actually a lot I want to talk about about the Bruins series. Um, so I might talk about that series a little bit more, but I know we've, we've already been on the air a while now and I, I want to be, I want to be mindful of time. I don't want to be one of these podcasts that just lingers on and on, even though, uh, you guys all know that I can't talk on and on about sports, especially. Um, but the first, the first question from Kyle is an NHL related question. Um, he says, who looks like the favorites coming out of the first round, which is perfect. Um, because there's been a lot of action so far, and I'll just start, I'll go through the series real, real quick, and I'll end with the Bruins, just give my take on that series, because it's the most local one, and for those of you who know me, I am a, a Bruins follower and fan, um, but we have the Penguins and Islanders, um, who are just finishing up their game, it looks like the Islanders are going to take that one, they're leading 4 nothing. that would even the series at two games apiece, which would make it a best of three, with Pittsburgh having the home ice advantage. I still like Pittsburgh coming out of that series, um, and I still like them coming out of the East in general. Um, but Islanders definitely showing Pittsburgh what they're made of today, um, and they're, they're, they've made that a series. Um, so I wouldn't be... They made that a series again, I should say. I would not be surprised if the Islanders pull it off. I think if you're a Bruins fan, that's the better matchup because you'll get home ice advantage in that series. Um, but I, for some reason, I still feel like the Penguins are going to pull that one out. Um, Panthers and Lightning, Lightning lead the series three games to one. I think it's pretty safe to say that Tampa's not going to lose four games in, uh, excuse me, three games in a row to Florida. Not saying it couldn't happen, but I still like Tampa coming out of that division in general. Um, and it seems like the Panthers are struggling to, um, really keep pace with especially today the losing 62 with the high-flying lightning however there have been a ton of goals scored in that series 
five, four, three, one, six, five, and six, two have been the scores. Um, but that being said, I still like the lightning coming coming out of there. Hurricanes and Predators. That took a major turn last night with the Predators winning in double overtime. Um, Carolina's looking vulnerable for the first time in that series. Um, I think it would be interesting. I think having a Nashville Tampa series would be fantastic because of the, just the fervor of those fan bases. Um, but either way, Hurricanes, Hurricanes um, versus Lightning would also be great to watch. Um, but I, I don't know. I, st- I still feel like Carolina's going to win that series. Um, but it's definitely more up in question than it was uh, before last night. Maple Leafs and Canadians. Um, I don't know what to make of Toronto. I still feel like they have that Leafs chokiness in them. Uh, I hate, hate to see John Tavares get injured like he like he did. I hope he's all fine. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Canadians pull off another upset. They're playing tonight at 7 p.m. Um, although it would be... It would be um, better for, I think, the competition to see the Leafs go further because they have all those stars on their team, and the league would like that more. Um, but we'll see what happens. I, I still like the Leafs coming out of that series, but I don't like them getting out of the North. Uh, the Oilers and Jets. Now, that's interesting because the Oilers were a team that I thought would be routing the Jets. Um, even though Connor Hellebuck is a great goalie, um, he's really stifled the Oilers. They they don't look like the same team. I mean, this, they've scored one goal in two games. It's just not the Oilers that um, that I saw over the course of the season in highlights. Um, so I think at this point, it's hard not to like the Jets coming out of that series. Uh, hard not to like the Avalanche either. They're up 3-0 on the Blues. I thought the Blues are going to put up a little bit more of a fight than they have. Um, but, I mean, Colorado's really having their way with them uh, winning all three games so far. And, and really, I mean, none of them have been close. 4-1, 6-3, 5-1. I mean, they look like a team that's ready. They look like a team that's ready to um, make a run at, at a serious cup uh, chance. You have the Golden Knights in the Wild. I thought the Wild might pull off the upset, and it's still likely that they could. Um, they're playing tonight as well. Uh, Minnesota struggled to score as much in the past two games. Um, really, the whole series. I mean, they've scored they've scored four goals in three games. Um, they had that great overtime win in Game One, but since then they've kind of looked flat, and the Vegas Knights have really put it to them physically. So I'm not. I'm not convinced that Minnesota can pull off the upset, but they're still in the series. They're at home tonight. If they win tonight, it's 2-2 two to two going back to Vegas, uh, and it's still anyone's series. Um, so that's my take on the uh, more uh, the series around the league. Um, my take on the Bruins is pretty, pretty fun to talk about. Um, so, so I will get to that in one moment. But first, I want to talk to you about Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to record a podcast. For those of you who haven't heard of it before, it's a simple website that helps you record, publish, and distribute your podcast across all major platforms, 
it's easy. You can record in the app on the website. You can upload it later. You can add music. You can add segments. You can add sound effects. I don't do a lot of that, but I use it mainly for the distribution. It used to be that you'd have to record a podcast. You'd have to find your RSS feed. You'd have to find a publisher. You'd have to get it on um, get it on iTunes or Spotify yourself. But Anchor makes it so easy. Like I said, it's easy enough that I can do it. Uh, if you want to record your own podcast, you just have to go to anchor.fm. That's www.anchor.fm. It's the easiest way to record a podcast, and it's probably the most fun way too. Because like I said, you can get it distributed and have your friends and family and others uh, around the country and the world start listening to your podcast too. Um, and, it's, and it distributes your podcast to all major platforms. So if you're looking to start a podcast, please visit www.anchor.fm. It is the best way to record a podcast. And if you're looking to start a podcast and you want someone to host it, invitations are welcome. You can join me at Sportland America as we are reimagining the fan experience. So, again, that's www.anchor.fm if you would like to start your own podcast. Now, as it pertains to the Bruins and Capitals series, it has not gone how I thought it went was going to go. I thought there would be these fluky 4-1, to 3-0 games on either side, and at the end of the day, it would balance it out, and we'd be destined for a 7-game series. That could very well still happen, but with the way that Friday night's win for the Bruins, the 4-1 to win, the way that that unfolded, they have taken a stranglehold on this series. And after the first three games into overtime, it was hard not to think that every single game was going to be a knockdown dragout. Um, and it, it felt like every game I was going to have hard palpitations. Like it was it was end-to-end, tape-to-tape hockey. I think the Bruins have benefited from some mistakes on Washington's part, especially the mistake by... Um, uh, Samsonov, Samsonov in in overtime on Wednesday night that led to the Bruins' victory. I think the Bruins have benefited a little bit from some sloppy officiating uh, on both sides, but I think the Bruins have gotten some benefit there, and I think they've gotten some benefit with some of the injuries that have happened to the Washington Capitals. I'm talking about Lars Eller. I'm talking about Vanacek. I'm talking about... Uh, other players that have missed time, like, um, I know I'm missing one. Oh, uh, Kuznetsov. So I, I think they've, they've certainly caught some breaks in the series. But that being said, the thing that I was worried most about the Bruins was uh, scoring across all lines. And I, I started to think about it this morning. I mean, you go through the lines. Last night, David Pasternak had a great goal that changed the ten, tenor of the game. Patrice Bergeron had a great goal in Game 2 that changed the tenor of the game. Taylor Hall, fantastic goal in both Game 2 and Game 3 that helped uh, resurrect the team. Then you had uh, Brad Marchand, who scored an OT winner in Game I think game 2, I believe. There's been so many great goals. I'm starting to lose track. You know, Craig Smith scores an overtime winner in Game, uh, game 3. And then you had David Krejci, who took a monstrous hit to begin the series in the first 30 seconds of last Saturday's game. He's been making um, 
making great plays on that line, distributing the puck and making making the power play more uh, uh, explosive than it has ever been this, this season. Uh, then you go down the line. You've got players like Charlie Coyle and Jake DeBrusque getting involved. Tuka Rask has played extremely well, um, given the way that Game 1 ended. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about how Game 1 evolved and, and, and whether or not Tuka was truly in it. Uh, for the long haul, but the, the way that he was taking shots at Garnet Hathaway in the crease the, the other night, it shows me that Tuka Rask is engaged, and this, this could be different. So I think there's a ton of things to like about this series to the Bruins. Obviously, they're up 3-1. to one. They're on the verge of advancing. But it's equally scary to think that the Washington Capitals, who are just so big and so skilled and so fast, could find their way back into the series at literally any second. All it would take would be a good performance by them on on uh, on Sunday night, and then a fluky bounce on on uh, Tuesday night. And the next thing you know, we have a game seven in Washington on Thursday, which would be a nightmare situation for the Bruins. So there's a lot that could still go wrong in the series for the Bruins. Uh, obviously, injuries could affect them. You know, obviously, we think about. Kevin Miller and the hit that he took last night and hope that he will um, end up being okay just just for life's sake uh, later on you know that he can still be with the team and not have to continue to be at the hospital whether or not he plays is obviously a different question uh, we, we want him to get better first but th there's there's a lot that could still happen for the Bruins that wouldn't necessarily be positive so before we start writing our tickets our bus tickets or our plane tickets to New York or Pittsburgh, I think that the Bruins need to take care of business uh, because this is a Washington team that at times has dominated them in periods. I mean, basically up until Wednesday night's overtime in game three, the Bruins were getting outplayed almost every single period. Uh, and then obviously last night was a different story, but there, there's still a lot that could happen, I would say, is my, is my, uh, is my two cents. So I think before we start crowning the Bruins, uh, division champions. I think we should we should uh, see how Sunday night plays out uh, because I'm still a little bit cautious, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, last question here in the mailbag segment, uh, which I guess has taken up the majority of the show at this point, but it's great. I love it when listeners interact. Uh, if the NBA with the NBA playoffs starting soon, will LeBron James be able to make it to the finals again? Does having three superstars on one team mean you automatically make it to the NBA finals and mostly win? Well, I would say recent history says yes. Um, I don't know about three superstars, but at least two. I think the teams that have historically done well and won championships, uh, especially in the last decade or so, have been teams. I mean, LeBron has won them himself with these sorts of teams. Uh, so I would say, yes, I would say if you have those superstars, you can pretty much ride your way to a, at least a conference finals appearance, if not a finals appearance and finals victory. Uh, I think the, you know, the Celtics, they're tipping off against the Nets tonight. The Nets are one of those teams with a plethora of superstars. Uh, the, you know, the Lakers, obviously you've got AD and LeBron. I mean, it, 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 the that's just the way that the league is, you know. And and I think if you if in your life if you've been asked LeBron versus the field in his conference, 
sometimes it's pretty safe to just pick LeBron. I mean, this is a guy that at one point I think made it to eight or nine straight finals. I'm not a huge NBA guy, but and I'm not. A, I'm definitely not a huge LeBron fan. But I mean, how can you not just? It's kind of like the default check mark. Like, yep, LeBron's going to be in the finals. I mean, most of my most of the 2010s, you had LeBron James in the in the NBA finals and Tom Brady in the AFC Championship game, and in in the foot in football. So I I think that I think that by and large it would be pretty safe to assume that because of the talent on his team and in in most cases that he would find his way to the finals. But that's not I'm not a huge NBA fan. I couldn't even tell you, you know. And it's sad that I it's sad that I don't know more more about this just because you know it would be, it would be it would make my podcast more well rounded. Um, that's why I had. Those guys on earlier from mainly Celtics earlier last month, but I think, I think that just it's just hard to bet against that guy making it to that stage because it just seems like it happens, no matter what. Um, but I, I I would be more inclined to just look at history. What does history tell you? What does history tell you about the NBA? What history in this past decade tells you about the NBA is that superstars win championships and superstars uh, get you to championships. So that would just be how I would look at that situation. Not a huge NBA expert per se, uh, but that certainly uh, t- seems to be the trend um, in recent in recent years. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I think that wraps up our mailbag section. I love all the questions from all you listeners. Definitely is uh, more fun that way. Um, before we go in the next 10 minutes or so, I want to just quickly finish up with a take I gave last week and then also my new daily cancellation, which is probably my most controversial cancellation to date. Um, but first, I did talk about Tim Tebow and the propensity of people to wish um, that he would not exist in sports. <laughs> And that he would just go away and get out of their face. Um, it's There's been a lot of criticism about whether or not he deserves a chance to become an NFL player. There's been a lot of discussion about whether or not he should even be given, a, given the opportunity, whether or not he deserves it or not, whether it's even the right thing to do. Um, but he officially became a... Uh, Jacksonville Jaguar this past week and merchandise on NFLShop.com immediately uh, had an uptick in Tim Tebow licensed apparel and that's not going away because if it's one thing that Tim Tebow does well it's get asses in seats and it's get people to buy stuff Um, and what that tells me is again there's a disconnect between what the talking heads will tell you about a particular player and what the fans want. Um, and I, I really do think it's the 80-20 rule. I think maybe not 80%, maybe not 80% in this situation, but I feel like the majority of the hate on Tim Tebow does come from a minority of the people. Uh, and I, I might have made that seem otherwise last week in my rant, but this is a small percentage of people that, are, have like Tebow derangement syndrome. Like you've heard of Trump derangement syndrome. I think these people have Tebow derangement syndrome. Like no matter what he does, they think it's the worst thing ever. All you have to do 
is go to Tim Tebow's Twitter where he tweets out a harmless and inspiring Bible verse. And you see people, you know, wish that he would shut up, tell him that he's never going to make it, tell him that he's not good enough. But we have to remember that this is a minority and that most people probably want probably think the guy is a, pro, is a uh, good influence and probably wouldn't mind seeing him get another shot just for entertainment value. And clearly the merchandise sales tell you a different story. Um, part of me still wishes that seven years ago or eight years ago when he was in Patriots training camp that I got a, a, a jer- not a jersey because those are expensive and my parents probably wouldn't have bought me one back then. Uh, not for a player that wasn't guaranteed to be on the roster. Um, but maybe for, uh, maybe for one of those t-shirts, uh, because that's, that's one thing that Tim Tebow does know how to do. He knows how to motivate people and whether that's motivate people in a spiritual way, motivate people in a, in a inspirational leadership way, motivate people to buy something, motivate people to watch something. That's what Tim Tebow does. And I think he's a positive influence on sports. And so there's nothing wrong with him getting an opportunity and for the people that argue that he's taking an opportunity away from someone else let's just remember that he hasn't made the roster yet he's getting invited to training camp and he was signed on a deal if he's not good he probably won't make the team it's just how it goes despite the fact that urban meyer is his coach let's not cancel anyone over this now speaking of cancel my daily cancel or my weekly cancellations the past two weeks. The first thing we canceled was, um, or l- last week we canceled, last week we canceled the word uh, or the phrase "living the dream," and the, I believe the week before we, uh, what did we cancel the week before? It's going to bother me. I don't even know what I canceled on my first segment of weekly cancellation. Maybe you should just cancel the podcast. Or maybe I should cancel the second. <laughs> but anyway, you guys know that I'm not huge into cancel culture. And I think it's destructive and stupid and ignorant. Um, and because of that, I find I find that the most fun thing to do is uh, make it a satire. And at this point, some of the things that happen in the news that I will start using on the weekly cancellation segment could very much be satire themselves with how ridiculous they are. And for those of you who are sick and tired of hearing about the royal family, um, you're not alone. I mean, I think these people for, and by the royal family, I don't mean like, I, I should clarify. It's, we don't hear a lot about the legitimate royal family in terms of like the queen and uh, obviously the Duke of Edinburgh died in few weeks ago and we don't hear a lot about the actual like figurehead the royal or her son or her grandson the people that are actually going to be the monarch we hear about all these other royals like prince harry and Meghan, uh, who are the topics of this cancellation and you're not alone if you're sick and tired of hearing about them because it seems like every time they make headlines they're doing exactly what they didn't want to do they left the royal family because they did not want the pub to live the quote unquote public life in Britain. You know they wanted they wanted to be pr- be private and 
do their own thing. What they really wanted was to control their own narrative. That's what they that's what they really wanted. And and obviously that sit down that they did back in uh, February or March with Oprah was completely about controlling their own narrative because they talked about things they knew the palace wouldn't comment uh, in depth on or in detail on. And they commented on things that they knew that the majority of the woke people in the media would echo. So, and, and I'm not diminishing their stories. I, I don't want to truth. I don't want to get into whether it was incorrect or wrong. I don't really think that's constructive. But what I do want to cancel is Prince Harry in general. Because I'm completely over him. I'm willing to give Meghan Markle the benefit of the doubt in some regard. Because of the fact that she hasn't always been a part of this establishment. Um, you know, she, she was an actress. She was in Hollywood. She's been famous, but she was never necessarily a part of this royal culture, um, this privileged culture. Her entire life, I would not say by any means, has been privileged. But this ridiculous Prince Harry victimhood charade is starting to get completely out of hand. And for the sake of people who are, listen who are listening, who are used to me talking about sports, I'm going to try and make this as brief as possible because I've already gone longer than I wanted. But essentially, Prince Harry did an interview in which he called the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, quote, bonkers during a podcast. Um, if he did it, if he was uh, privileged enough to come on my podcast, he would never be allowed to say that. But basically, uh, he, well, I shouldn't say he should never be allowed to say that because the First Amendment, who, which he seems to be criticizing, uh, allows him to say such idiotic things without fear of getting arrested by the government. He should be happy that he lives in America now, where he won't be arrested for saying that the country, that the most important law that's ever been on the books in this entire country is bonkers. I mean, this is what he said word for word. Quote, I don't want to start sort of going down the First Amendment route because that's a huge subject and one in which I don't understand because I've only been here a short period of time. Great. Awesome. If that's all you said, perfect. That's how you answer the question. I'm not even sure what the question was. I think it was about the I think it was about the fact that there's been a lot of media buzz around them since their interview with Oprah Winfrey and since it was revealed that they stayed at Tyler Perry's home or yada yada yada. So I think it was in response to that question. But then he goes on and he makes a complete ass of himself when he says, but you can find a loophole in anything and you can capitalize or exploit what's not said rather than uphold what is said. I've got so much I want to say about the First Amer Amendment as I sort of understand it, but it is bonkers, he continued. It is bonkers, as he would say. Unbelievable. For someone who complained about it in Britain, moved to the United States, where he knew we had stricter laws on protecting speech in the United States. We're not, this isn't a country yet where people are kicked off TV like Piers Morgan was kicked off TV for criticizing him, which is ironic. So his country, which he left because it was so terrible and they were treating him so poorly, which has stricter laws than the First Amendment in terms of protecting speech, he comes here where there's freer laws, and he believes it to be bonkers. 
Well, if he wants stricter laws, then he should go back to where he came from, where those stricter laws exist. This is a country that he and his wife moved to to live a private life, and I commend them for it. This is the best place in the world to have freedom and prosperity and, and you know, live your own way of life. But don't come here and start criticizing our lots and calling them bonkers, considering you came from a place where you thought it was so terrible and they have the kind of speech laws that you want here. That, that is ridiculous to me. And, you know, this, is, this is just goes along with that whole narrative that America is terrible, yet all these, celebrity, these, these celebrities believe that America is terrible, yet they have no problem with the privileges that do come of being an American. And I'm not talking about these made-up privileges that you hear about in academia. I'm talking about privileges that exist, such as freedom of speech, which actually isn't a privilege. It's a right. And as an American, you have that right. And if he doesn't understand it, again, this this actually, his last quote leads to a bigger problem, which is, I've got so much I want to say about the First Amendment as I sort of understand it. No, it's not a subjective thing. The First Amendment was written, and it should be interpreted as it was written. It's not a, as sort of I understand it. No, it is how it was written, and whether you understand it or not, that's what it means. So you saying it is bonkers, bonkers, doesn't actually give any credence to the, um, to the vitality or the validity of that, of that uh, virtue that we have, uh, that First Amendment right that we have. So it's it's just idiotic that he would even say that after what he's been what he's been afforded here. He's been afforded the First Amendment right to go on Oprah Winfrey and talk about a foreign government the way he did. His own family, he talked about them in that way. And basically, he likes the First Amendment when it applies to him. So in this situation, when he's criticizing the government of the country in which he resides, the First Amendment is completely great. But when it comes to, when it comes to media members, whether they treat him unfairly or not, that's bonkers. Because only, only he, only he can, uh, only he can, uh, can enjoy the, the, the benefits of, of that virtue. As for the people in middle America, like you and I, we, we have to just sit by the wayside and let a British royal tell us, uh, what our law, what our laws should be, um. And, and just so everyone knows, I don't really have a problem with the royal family. I think it's a great, I think it's a great um, symbol of Western culture. Um, but I am a true red, white, and blue American. And I do believe that, you know, obviously we broke away for a reason. Uh, and it was so that we could create this, this free society where that right is held and austere and revered. Not a place where you know, celebrities in this new, you know, elitist ruling class can tell us how we should think about certain issues. Uh, and I think, I think it was hilarious. Uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw from the Houston area of Texas, he tweeted, well, I just doubled the size of my Independence Day party, which I think is the most matter of fact and uh, hilarious response to that idiotic 
uh, statement by Prince Harry. So we've ultimately canceled Prince Harry here on home field advantage. Although I don't think anything will come of it because uh, cancel culture only works one way. It only works for uh, idiotic things that people might have tweeted or said when they were adolescents. And it doesn't actually work for things that are done in the here and now. And, and uh, especially things that are done by people who are part of the, uh, the elitist class. Um, but nevertheless, Prince Harry, I hope you enjoy your time here in America. I really do hope you stick around because I think if you stick around here long enough, you'll learn that this is a pretty damn good place to spend your time. And uh, whether you're in um, whether you're in Southern California, Northern Maine, or Washington State, or Florida, or even Alaska and Hawaii, this is a great place, and it's some in some place that I think uh, anyone in the world would love to live. Um, but that being said, I, you know, I think there are, I think there are other countries where people can have a great time. Apparently, he wasn't having a great time in his, um, so he felt the need to come here and tell us how we should feel about our lives. So, on that note, we've effectively canceled Prince Harry. We've effectively uh, canceled, or we've effectively uh, supported Tim Tebow. We've talked about the conflict in baseball. We've talked about the NHL playoffs. We've answered some questions about um, the Red Sox season. We've answered some questions about the NBA. And uh, I think I think we've had a pretty jam-packed episode. I don't think I've ever gone over an hour by myself, um, other than maybe a few episodes here and there. Uh, so I appreciate you all listening. Again, I, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. That would be awesome. I would sincerely appreciate that. Um, I think I think we're building something pretty great here, and I think that it will be it will be a um, fun ride for anyone who wants to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, home field advantage has been a great project for me. I started it and I didn't really know what I wanted it to be, um, but it has since become a really great passion project of mine. So I'd appreciate it if you subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Um, that's the website of the parent organization Sportland America. That's www.sportlandamerica.wixsite, Wix spelled W-I-X-S-I-T-E, wixsite.com slash mysite. Again, that's sportlandamerica.wixsite.com. I'll put that link in my bio on my Instagram page, which is at homefieldpod on Instagram. Again, that's at homefieldpod. Appreciate it if you sign up for a newsletter, follow us on Instagram, or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Call that tr- the Triple Crown. If you can do one of those three things, that would be awesome. I appreciate you all listening. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend, and uh, I hope I hope uh, I hope you're able to spend some time with some family and friends as uh, as we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel here uh, in 2021. Uh, until next time, my name is Will Highland, and this is Home Field Advantage. Like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite provider, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Home Field Advantage is produced and recorded by Will Highland under the umbrella of Sportland America. Home Field Advantage is an independent program, and the opinions shared on this program do not reflect those of any other company or entity.